encourage you to open up to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 29. I'll be reading 1 to 22. That's 1 Chronicles 29, 1 to 22. And David, the king, said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. And the work is great for the palace, will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and the wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, anointy coloured stones of all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house, and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of fathers' houses made their freewill offerings, as did the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of the hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God, 5,000 talents and 1,000 darics of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord, in the care of Jehiel, the Jezonite. And the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for the whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David, the king, also rejoiced greatly. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honour come from you, and you rule over all in your hand and power and might and in your hand. It is to make great and give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here, offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart, that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies and your statutes, performing all that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, 
Bless the Lord your God and all the assembly. Bless the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the King. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord, and on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, 1,000 bulls, 1,000 rams, and 1,000 lambs. And their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much, Phil. Good morning, everyone, and let me add my greetings to Ben's this morning. Uh, it's great to have Ben leading our service for us today. Ben's one of our elder nominees, um, and it's my privilege now to open God's word for us as we get into the first of our new series in the, what we're calling the Generosity Project. So I hope everyone's got a copy of this book. It'll help you as we work through the studies during the week. Of course, the, the spade work of this next six weeks is going to happen in our Grace Community groups during the week. So please do make sure you grab uh, or get, in, get involved in a group if you'd like to know how to do that. A uh, bit like what Ben said earlier, please keep asking around until you find someone. Uh, or you can hop onto our website and there's a group finder on there or chat to me afterwards and we'll help to connect you with a group of people that you can work through this project with during the week. Um, you can also, if you can't find a group, grab a few friends and everything you need to, uh, to work through this project in Scripture is here in the book with you. So you can find all the video lessons and things. Uh, the links are in here. So find a few friends perhaps and work through it with us over the next six weeks. What we'll do on a Sunday is we'll look at just one of the passages from the week's study uh, and kind of dive deep into it as we're going to do this morning. So I invite you, please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. It's a hard one to find, uh, but please do look it up and we'll be spending our time there this morning. As we do that, though, would you join me as we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd please deal generously with us today, that we may live and keep your word. Please open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. And please, through your word and your spirit, help us to keep looking more and more like the Lord Jesus, our Savior and our King. This we pray in his name. Amen. Well, you'll also find uh, in the little service outlines, I think we might have run out already. I have a suspicion that we've done that. There is a space there for you to write down notes if you'd like. Um, thanks also for your patience and your flexibility as we make a few changes to our services. Now, the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles in the Old Testament, I think they sometimes get overshadowed by the books of 1 and 2 Kings. Uh, so we might not be as familiar with them. The, the reason for that is that the history that's covered in 1 and 2 Chronicles seems very similar to what's going on in 1 and 2 Kings. Now, it's worth knowing that there are quite a few important differences between 1 and 2 Chronicles and 1 and 2 Kings. Even though they have a lot in common, there are some things that which make them both important parts of the Old Testament. And I'd like to just share with you three important differences as we get into things this morning. The first one is that the, the perspective in 1 and 2 Chronicles is different to the perspective in 1 and 2 Kings. So the books of Kings were actually written before the exile. 
exile, of course, when God uh, judged his people by sending them away from the promised land into Babylon as prisoners. And so 1 and 2 Kings were written just as that was happening. 1 and 2 Chronicles, by contrast, it's describing many of the same events, but it's written 500 years later, um, 500 years after the events they're describing, after the people had returned from Babylon. Uh, That's the first thing. The perspective is different. So 500-year gap between 1 and 2 Kings and or the events in 1 and 2 Kings and the events in one, uh, the writing of 1 and 2 Chronicles. Secondly, their focus is very different. What you find, and this is obvious from the title, the books of 1 and 2 Kings are focused more on the reigns of the kings over four centuries of uh, Old Testament history uh, in, in the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. The books of Chronicles, though, they cover the same history but they're more concerned with God's covenant promises to his people worked out over that period, illustrated in the building of the temple. So you often find that the writer of Chronicles keeps coming back to the building of the temple over and over and over, like like we have this morning in chapter 29. So different perspective, different focus. Also, the aim is different because 1 and 2 Kings, it's more of a work of history, while 1 and 2 Chronicles, without compromising the history, is actually more of a work of theology telling us something about the God behind God's people. And the reason for that really is the time in which it was written. It was written so long after the events it's describing when God's people were returning to Jerusalem and being reminded what happened at the building of the first temple so that they would get behind the building of the second temple. And that's going to explain what we have this morning in chapter 29. So in chapter 29, King David is responding to God's promise that his son would build the first temple. And so David says, just the previous chapter, verse 6, God said to me, It is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. So that's the context. That's a bit of a background of 1 and 2 Chronicles, kind of where we are in the Bible. Please have your Bibles open at that passage so you can follow with us. And uh, as I said, there's a space for an outline um, in the service notes. Now, we all know that big infrastructure projects cost big money. But I wonder if you were also left scratching your head when the New South Wales government announced recently that they were going to put um, the Aboriginal flag on top of Sydney Harbour Bridge to the tune of $25 million. Of course, I think most Australians would probably get behind the project, but at a cost of $25 million for a flagpole? And where would that money have come from? Oh, it would have come from taxation. It would have come from the pockets of ordinary, hardworking Australians who would have basically been forced to fund a bloated public infrastructure project. would have left them resentful, disgruntled, and disillusioned, and actually very little achieved for the building together of our society. Enter New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet to the rescue. Diplomatically, he didn't criticize openly the cost or the timescale of the project. But he did commit to going through the proposal line by line to ensure taxpayers got value for money. But I think even better was when the Premier announced during a press conference, I'll go to Bunnings myself and climb up there and put the pole up. Now, thankfully, a more agreeable solution has been found. But I couldn't help wondering, you know, what if Mr. Perrottet had come good on his his commitment? 
What if he had left his tie and his jacket at the office one day, driven down to Bunnings, you know, gone in the trade entrance, uh, he bought all the necessary bits and pieces, a few dyna bolts, a bit of steel pipe, some rope, paid for it with his own debit card, not his expense account. I think the way Australians are, I'm also sure Mr. Perrottet wouldn't have had much trouble getting other people on board to help him do that. I don't think he would have had much trouble finding someone to, you know, lend a scissor lift or to, you know, direct traffic on the bridge while he was busy. But we can play with the what-ifs all day, but I think there's no denying that there's something very compelling and attractive about a generous example, isn't there? And in verse 1 to 5 of our passage today, we see David's very generous example. This is under the first heading you've got there, example and invitation, verse 1 to 9. Because in verse 1 to 5, David shows us a very generous example. The scale of the temple project was always going to require a massive amount of resources. It was a building designed to make an international statement about God and his people. And there are many ways David could have raised the funds that were needed, the resources that were needed. He could have taxed the people more, levied more taxes. He could have made laws and decrees. He could have sent his heavies round to the suburbs in Jerusalem and taken what was needed by force. But David does none of that. Instead, what he does is he starts by tapping two more personal resources. The first is in verse 2, the national treasury, what they already have. But perhaps more surprisingly, he also taps into his personal treasury as well, verse 3 to 5. Now, of course, we don't work in talents anymore. So let me read to you from the Christian Standard Bible, which has done the conversions for David's personal donations in verse 4. It records them as 100 tons of gold, gold of Ophir, 250 tons of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the buildings. That's a lot of gold and silver. And I did some sums last week, and based on last week's commodity prices, that's gold worth 5.6 billion US dollars, and a silver worth 227.4 million dollars, just from David's personal assets. I think the point the author is making is that King David himself starts by setting a staggering example of generosity. He does that before he asks anyone else to contribute. And you know, looking at the numbers involved, there's every indication that what David gave, which, which would largely have been the spoils of, of his military campaigns, there's every indication that David gave everything he had. The kind of numbers we are talking about there is kind of personal net worth of the wealthiest individuals of the day. He gave it all, holding nothing back. That's what God's king does to start with. But there's something else to notice in David's example, because he doesn't just model an amount. He also models an attitude. You see, ancient kings are no different to modern politicians. Often, these big infrastructure projects, they, they want to have a big plaque on it with a big name, so that people remember them and their legacy long after they're gone. But that's not what's important for David as he starts planning and providing for the building of the temple in Jerusalem. He says quite clearly in verse 1, The work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. 
He calls the temple in verse 2, the house of my God. And as motivation in verse 3, devotion to the house of my God. The motivation behind David's project was not his fame, but God's glory. And in fact, that's what the temple was all about. The temple was never just a glorified church building. It was a majestic symbol of God's presence with his chosen people. The scale and grandeur of which was just to advertise the fact to the whole world. So more than modeling just material generosity, David also models a heart behind that generosity. A devotion to the Lord driving the way he gives. Well, it's this example of generous devotion which creates the backdrop then to David's invitation to the people of Israel. Because without law, without force, without coercion, he invites them at the end of verse 5, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord. So first notice how the invitation is to offer willingly. Basically, those who don't want to don't have to. It's only for those who actually want to. The Lord is not glorified by gifts given begrudgingly, and we'll see why that is a little bit later. But second, notice how the offering is a way for people to be consecrated to the Lord. I'll just explain what that word consecrated means. You might be familiar with the word, maybe in the context of old church buildings. Very traditional churches will consecrate a new church building. And what that means is to set the building apart for God and God's purposes. So with that in mind, shouldn't it be the gold and the silver and the stones and the iron and all that that are consecrated for God's purposes? After all, they'll be the things that are actually used to build the temple. Actually, no, this is about God's people setting themselves apart for God's purposes. And this tells us something vitally important about God, which David picks up in his prayer, because this building project is not actually about a building. It's not about bricks. It's not about plaster. It's about the relationship between God and his covenant people. One Bible teacher points out the invitation is actually about the giving of oneself, just expressed by the giving of one's wealth. Well, how do the people respond? Verse 6 to 9, they respond willingly in a way which reflects David's example. They imitate the way David gives. And so to use the Christian standard Bible's conversions again in verse 7, for the service of God's house they gave, listen to this, 185 tons of gold, 10,000 gold coins, 375 tons of silver, 675 tons of bronze, and 4,000 tons of iron. Given willingly, gladly, joyfully, in imitation of David's example, we once again have staggering generosity. And then verse 9, they rejoiced. They responded with joy, not because they had given much, verse 9, but because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. I wonder, when do we find most joy in being generous? I think it's usually when the benefit or the, the reward 
far outweighs the sense of personal cost. If I can give $2 and achieve something incredible, well, I'll gladly give $2. But here, the willing gifts of God's people actually show us how loosely they held on to what they had, so much that it was easy to give willingly when God required. It might have cost them a a heck of a lot on paper, but it cost them little in their hearts because the joy of participating in what God had called them to was worth far more than the joy of keeping what they had to themselves. David's prayer in the next section explains the key principles behind this attitude of joyful generosity. I know we're doing a flyover today. There's lots that could be said here, but I'd like to give us a sense of what's going on across the whole chapter. So this is our second heading for this morning, humility, privilege, and joy. And what we have from verse 10 is actually a public prayer led by David. David's prayer gives us a little window into David's heart and the way he thinks about generosity for God's glory. And there are three things I'd like you to notice in David's prayer. These are three principles which guide David's generosity and the generosity of God's people. The first one is that it all belongs to God. It all belongs to God. Everything in heaven and earth, verse 11. That includes the things we think belong to us, the things we think we've earned through our own cleverness or hard work, or things that have been given to us by someone else, like an inheritance perhaps. All those things actually belong to God. He has the power to give, the power to take away. You remember when we looked at Ecclesiastes last term, it was very much the fact that God has the power to give and to take away. People who work hard don't always receive everything that they work for. People who do nothing often receive far more. Both riches and honor come from God. Verse 12, it's in God's hand to make great. No real surprise here. It doesn't make sense to think of a sovereign God, an eternal God who created the universe and who rules over it, but for there to be this little corner of his universe containing things over which he has no right, as if the universe were like the office fridge where there's a little Tupperware in the bottom corner that says, Clint's, don't touch. 20th century Dutch theologian Abraham Kaper once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Everything we have belongs to God, friends. Our homes, our cars, the money in our bank accounts, our time, our education, our skills, our gifts, all these things ultimately belong to God. He's merely entrusted them to us for the duration of our lives. The myth of the self-made man or self-made woman is just that. It's a myth. Everything belongs to God. Just as an aside, if you think that David's words in verse 10 and 11 sound familiar, you'd be right. Uh, Some translations of the Lord's Prayer actually include them at the end, uh, end of the prayer with the words, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. This is actually where it comes from. Just thought you might like to know that. But what if, you know, we looked at everything we had and we reminded ourselves, first of all, God, this is yours. How would you have me use it? 
Well, that's the first principle. Everything belongs to God. Secondly, to give is a generous gift. So look with me at verse 14. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. This is not efficient on God's part. It's not efficient for God, who owns everything in the universe, to put it in the hands of, um, let me dare I say, foolish and weak and silly humans like ourselves, and say, right, now, I want you to take this, and when I call for it, I want you to give it back to me. Wouldn't it just made more sense, be more efficient, if God had just kept it for himself in the first place and done what he wanted to do? And yet that's not how he works. He's generous enough to his own people to entrust them with resources and invite them to participate. And for that reason, David is humbled by the privilege of being able to give, to be able to be part of this incredible thing that God is doing. In verse 15, David admits to being just a guest on God's earth, as all of us are. In verse 16, he admits Uh, He admits that everything that's been given for the temple belongs to God anyway. Perhaps even more importantly, in verse 17, he recognizes that God sees the heart. He looks past the gifts into the heart of the giver. There's a thought. And he still invites us to participate generously. This reminds me of going to church with my parents as a child. You know, we used to send around collection bags in those days. But every week as the bag came around, I remember my dad would uh, grab my 10-year-old hand and shove a very, very folded-up banknote into it uh, for me to put in the bag as it came around. The money didn't belong to me. I didn't earn it. I was too young to work anywhere. But my dad generously allowed me to take part in resourcing what God was doing for his glory through our church. And even though it wasn't my money, I knew I was responsible for it even for a few seconds, and there was something special about the privilege of getting to put it in the bag. I wonder, do we also have that same sense when we give to God? Part of David's prayer is also a petition for his people. He prays not that they would keep giving like they did that day, of course, because material resources do eventually run out and you've got the law of diminishing returns and all that, but the Lord, he prays that the Lord would, in verse 18, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. Because as we said earlier, this is not about a building. It's not about bricks and plaster and marble and gold and silver and iron and stones and jewels. This is about the relationship between God and his people, especially that God's purposes would always be the priority of God's people. Excuse me. Well, in verse 20, after the collection and the prayer is done, it's our third point, joy of generosity. There's a huge party and a worship service as well. And if I've done my research correctly, this seems to be the biggest sacrifice in the history of Israel so far. That's why those numbers are important. 
the best livestock, lots of them, given willingly to be sacrificed to the Lord because he was worthy of it. And the joy persists. And at the end of verse 22, the final act of business is to confirm Solomon as David's successor and the one who would actually oversee this temple project. Now, this is all Old Testament stuff, and sometimes we can wonder what are we to do with what we read in the Old Testament. Um, and I didn't have this all together when I put the service outline together this week, so this, this next point is not on your outline, but it'll have it up on the screen. Uh, I'm just going to call this third point a new temple and a new privilege. Because the temple that Solomon built, uh, that David and his people provided for so generously, was actually destroyed by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylonian Empire when they rolled into Jerusalem in 586 BC. And because King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make a statement about how much better he was than Judah's God and how much power he had over Judah's God, he did a very thorough job of erasing any trace of the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple, from the face of the earth. If you read, especially in the book of Isaiah, there's accounts of where um, they say that a traveler passing through would have to ask where the temple used to be. That's how much Nebuchadnezzar utterly destroyed it. All of its wealth was carried to Babylon. It was gone in 586 BC. And, of course, the temple was rebuilt, but a similar fate awaited the second temple. That was the temple that was built at the time of writing, 1 Chronicles 29. That temple was renovated a number of times over the interceding years, before finally being raised by the Romans in 70 AD. And they also did a very thorough job of removing the temple from where it was. So what are we meant to take away from 1 Chronicles 29 as God's people in 2022 AD? Well, it's very important to recognize, of course, that the Bible is one story with one message. And so what we read about here in the Old Testament, the temple, the Davidic king, got to keep in mind that these things are actually markers, significant markers that point to a greater reality as they are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's start with the king. Because when the Old Testament shows us King David, a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel 13, a man whose kingdom God promised to establish forever, what we're seeing in King David is actually a preview of King Jesus. That's why Jesus' birth was announced by the angel with these words from Luke chapter 1. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. It's because everything that King David was meant to be was fulfilled in Jesus. What about the temple? Well, when the Old Testament shows us the temple, remember we're seeing the place where God dwells among his people. But as we do, we're also seeing a preview of the Lord Jesus, in whom God dwells as Emmanuel, God with us. And then by extension also of God's people of all nations gathered together in the Lord Jesus, in whom God dwells by his Spirit. So yes, the temple is the church, but we're not talking about buildings and, and ecclesiastical structures. We're talking about God's own people in whom he dwells. 
So the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's Old and New and Old Testament. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see? This was never going to be about a big building. It was going to be about a big people in whom God dwells. And, you know, this is just another reason why any notion of building another temple in geographical Jerusalem when Jesus comes back is nonsense. The temple that is being built is the people God is calling to himself from every nation through the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. Those who want to see a new bricks and mortar temple being built on earth are reading the Bible backwards. And I don't think they've truly understood just how great a thing Jesus achieved at the cross. God's new temple is not a building or a church establishment. It's his people with whom he dwells in Christ. So that's, that's the king, that's the temple. Let's look at the sacrificial example as well, because when the Bible shows us a generous King David giving from his own wealth, giving everything for the sake of God's purposes, and calling God's people to imitate his example, again, we're seeing a preview of the Lord Jesus Christ, willingly offering himself up as a sacrifice to God, for the sake of God's people, giving his life as a ransom for many and inviting God's people to respond by imitating his sacrifice. So that's why Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. exactly the same thing is echoed in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, so based on what Jesus has done, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So for all of these reasons, it's crucial that when we read 1 Chronicles 29, this side of the cross. It isn't about, you know, a long time ago in a land far, far away. It's crucial that when we read it, it actually reminds us of the gospel. It teaches us something about how to understand Jesus and what he calls us to. It shows us the shape of generosity that's actually driven by the gospel. As we respond to God's king giving himself for us and imitating his generosity to us by giving ourselves entirely to him. And so with that in mind, the invitation is exactly the same. Back in 1 Chronicles 29 verse 5, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Who will recognize today what God has given them in Christ and offer it willingly, setting themselves apart for God, being, being part of God's great gospel project to build a new people.
people in Christ in whom he dwells by his spirit. It's to be involved in seeing people come to know Jesus and spending ourselves for Christ's sake in that project. Will you offer the time that God has given you? Will you offer the home that God has given you so people can come to know Jesus? Will you offer your ability to organize things or your ability to build things, your ability to encourage people, your ability to teach or care for people? Will you offer your wealth? In fact, will you offer the very gospel God has generously given you in Christ so that others can join God's people? Will you be generous with what the Lord has entrusted to you so that God's new temple may be built? the people he is saving in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a staggering privilege it is to be invited to give ourselves to what God is doing, friends. I hope we see it that way this morning. Now, I don't think that most Australians need to be told to be generous. For a long time, Australia has ranked as one of the most generous nations on earth. Uh, when there are bushfires or floods, people never fail to get stuck in and to help one another, to give towards those causes. Three in five Australians report making donations to charities every year. And in fact, the CAF World Giving Index in their 2021 report placed Australia as the developed nation with the highest rate of charitable giving. It's, uh, it's a study that is, that is um, measured on the metrics of Three things, helping strangers, donating to charity, or volunteering. Uh, And interestingly, as the highest developed nation on that list, Australia comes behind Myanmar, Nigeria, Kenya, and in first place, Indonesia. Figure that one out for yourself. Australia has got a very long history of being generous and compassionate and charitable, and there's many social and historical reasons for that. But interestingly, there was a government study done in 2016 that asked Why are Australians so generous? And the number one answer by almost 40% of respondents was this. Because it's a good thing to do. Because it's a good thing to do. Now, as I close, I want to encourage you this morning not just to be generous, because many of you are. We know from what's given here at Grace uh, that you're very generous. But rather, reflecting on what we've read in 1 Chronicles 29, I'd like to encourage you to ask yourself, why am I generous? Because it's easy to be generous in a culture that is generous. But the truth is that a culture of generosity can actually obscure gospel generosity. The temple that David and the people of Israel provided for and that Solomon built was a majestic and awe-inspiring statement to the nations that said the living God lives here with his people. If the motivation behind our generosity is no different from the surrounding culture, how will they know that anything different is going on here? But if our response, if our, if our generosity is a response to God's generosity to us, imitating the example of King Jesus' sacrificial generosity with deep humility, a sense of privilege, and a sense of joy. What will that say about our God to the surrounding world? 
especially when they themselves are on the receiving end of our gospel-driven generosity? Will our generosity be driven by the gospel? Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who are we that we should be able to offer willingly to you? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. Lord, we are strangers before you and and visitors as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we get to provide for you to build your kingdom comes from your hand and is all your own. Father, please help us today to recognize just what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and to respond with a gospel-driven generosity. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. I invite the music team forward.